podcast. I'm your host, Adult Angeretic, and this is episode 9, The History of Bedwetting. This episode's going to be a little bit different than some of the other episodes that we've done, in that there's not going to be any anecdotes at the end. This is going to be purely an episode about the history of bedwetting. All facts. I know that some of you like hearing the anecdotes, and this is going to be a little bit different this time. I'm hoping that this will be pretty entertaining nonetheless. Tonight's story is going to start off in 1550 BC. We have information that begins from Eber's Papyrus. Eber's Papyrus is an Egyptian papyrus of medical knowledge. It was discovered by George Ebers. George Ebers was a Egyptologist in the 1800s. This was the sort of golden age of Egyptology. You could just go to markets and buy papyri that were being sold as antiquities that anybody could go and pick up. He went and he picked this up and purchased it, brought it home, and it turned out that this was a very long scroll of Egyptian medical knowledge dating back to 1550 BC. This was full of medical knowledge on all sorts of subjects. The bit that's interesting to us tonight is going to have a couple of sections on bedwetting. The short bit that pertains to bedwetting has a snippet that says that you can feed a child juniper berries, cypress, and beer to cure bedwetting. There's a longer passage on bedwetting that says that you can boil fiance beads until they form a pellet. If he be an older child, he should be allowed to swallow it in a gulp. But if he be in swaddling clothes, one should rub it together for him in the milk just as it flows forth from his nurse for four days. I find this a little bit baffling as bedwetting is something that you would assume is going to affect an older child. A child in swaddling clothing, I would assume to be an infant. So I'm not sure how we're getting to a child in swaddling clothing and a child that has milk that flows forth from their nurse being somebody that needs a treatment for bedwetting. I wasn't 100% sure what faience beads were, so I looked into it. Faience is a type of Egyptian ceramic. It's uh, made of silica and it has a brightly colored glaze. In addition to the silica, it contains alkali salts. They're made from either natron which is a naturally occurring mineral that they get in the flats around the Nile uh, with sodium bicarbonate in it, or plant ash. It also has minor amounts of lime and uh, metallics for colorant. The colorant metallics are usually copper, so it has bright green coloration. So you boil these beads down until they form a pellet in the solution. And you take the pellet like a pill, and that was the Egyptian remedy for bedwetting. This is fairly innocuous compared to some of the other things that we're going to see coming up here. We don't really know how important Eber's papyrus was to the ancient Egyptians in terms of it being a source for their medical knowledge, but we do know that it's one of our only sources of knowledge about what medicine the ancient Egyptians had. As we move forward in time, we do know that this next source is, and it was an important source of 
knowledge to the people at the time. Next we have a book, or rather what we might consider the first encyclopedia, called Natural History, written by Pliny the Elder, 77 AD. Um, it was important to the Romans. This encyclopedia contained all kinds of information that you might imagine an encyclopedia would, but it also contained a vast collection of medical information that was accurate to what they understood at the time. Pliny the Elder was, his proper name was Gaius Plinius Secundus. He was known as Pliny the Elder, even though he, I believe, was, since his name was Secundus, was actually effectively Pliny Jr., but he had a nephew of the same name. So he was known as Pliny the Younger, so Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger, them being contemporaries. Pliny the Elder was a military commander and traveled the world as a result and collected a whole lot of knowledge and started to write it down. He wrote some military texts which were lost to history eventually, but his big collection of 37 books that formed the Encyclopedia of Natural History were copied and passed down, so we have them. His remedies for bedwetting were primarily to have the sufferer consume boiled mice. Other remedies that he suggested were wood lice and the urine of spaded swine. I'm not 100% sure what spaded swine are. I didn't find a reference for that anywhere that I looked. The next character who took a stab at it was a guy named as Paul of Regina. He was a Byzantine-era physician. He wrote what was called the Medical Compendium in Seven Books. It was supposed to be unrivaled for its accuracy and completeness. His remedy for bedwetting was to burn the crop of the cock and give it to the patient to drink in tepid water when fasting, or the flowers of the white oxi in a like manner, or to shave down the testicle of a hair, in some translations it's pulverized the testicle of a hair, into fragrant wine and give it to drink. There's a lot of what seem like folk remedies, but they're given by people who are known to be physicians or people who are of great authority. But you can see that in the ancient world, they did not have a whole lot going on in terms of accuracy or knowledge of true remedies here. You know, accuracy of information. They were kind of shooting from the hip. As we move along to 1545, we meet Thomas Fair, who was a British physician who wrote the first textbook of childhood disorders. He had his own remedy, of course, to take care of bedwetting, and now we're looking at something that, at least in theory, is written in English. I'm going to read this. This is a little bit difficult to read. Uh, it's written in sort of a mixed Old English type of a expression. Take the wee sand of a cock and pluck it, that breen it in powder, 
and use it twice or thrice a day. Stones of a hedgehog powdered is of the same virtue. Item the claws of a goat. I had to do a little bit of taking this apart to make some sense of it. And spellings even of the things that I pronounced in a way that makes sense are a little bit screwy. But some of the words like we sand apparently means throat. So in this case, we're looking at taking out the throat of a cock. Presumably here we're talking chicken. And pluck it. Green it in powder. Apparently we're going to burn it down to powder or ash. And use it two to three times a day. Using it two or three times a day, I'm assuming means to take it orally. The stones of a hedgehog powdered is of the same virtue. I do not know what the stones of a hedge hedgehog are. I'm not all that familiar with hedgehogs. I don't know that they possess stones. I don't know how you powder them. I don't know if the stones are an external thing. That hedgehogs have stones in their nests or that we're talking like gallstones kidney stones, some sort of internal thing. But in any case, the stones of a hedgehog powdered are of the same virtue. Or you can use the claws of a goat. I have not seen goats described before as having claws, so I'm assuming that we mean the hooves of a goat, using that as the same type of terminology. This is what we get out of our first English textbook on the subject. These antiquated ideas were not isolated to Western scholars, of course. You can look at cultures around the world and see some pretty wild ideas as well. Early uh, West African cultures and traditions sometimes tied a toad to the penis around the waist of a bedwetting child. The toad would croak at the first sign of wetness like an alarm. Or, in some of the reports I read, the frog or toad was tied around the waist just to be frightening. It wasn't used as an alarm, it was just tied there because it was scary and the idea was to scare the bedwetting out of the child. I'm not sure why that would be expected to work, but apparently that was a go-to. Some Native American tribes, the Navajo in particular, used to make a child stand over a bird's nest with their legs apart, naked. And then they would set the bird's nest on fire. The rationale behind this apparently was that birds do not wet their nest and that the smoke from the bird's nest somehow anoints them and transfers this ability to the child. Bantu people who are from Nigeria, Congo region, would scarify the face of a bedwetter to let out the bad blood. Uh, I'm surprised it actually took this long to reach any sort of bloodletting. Uh, the humeral system of medicine was something that was common also in the Western world for a very long time. So it's surprising that bloodletting didn't show up through one of the other traditions that 
we examined earlier. The Lesotho people take an Inuretic child to the edge of a very steep precipice and have them pass urine over the edge. So apparently peeing over the edge of a cliff is a way to cure bedwetting. And I'm not sure here if it's just a frightening concept that's supposed to scare the bedwetting out of you or what the rationale here actually is. In the 18th century, magical treatments stopped, at least in the western part of the world. But they still didn't really have the right idea for how to treat bedwetting. So they were making a lot of things up, trying a lot of random processes, trying to figure out what to do, trying a lot of things that were not really quite right. Early medications for bedwetting included belladonna, atropine, and a number of other things to try and relax the bladder, in some cases paralyze it. Belladonna, incidentally, is also sometimes known as deadly nightshade. So it was really a case of using poison and the dose makes the poison so it's using enough of it to try and create an effect without using too much of it and killing the patient which incidentally is still often the case in medicine where you have to use the proper amount of medication because too high of a dose is lethal through this next section I'm going to reference a lot of different physicians and doctors I'm not going to explain that all of them are physicians and doctors. I'm just going to reference them by their names. So if I bring up a name that you have not heard me say before, it'll usually just be somebody new that I'm introducing. Samuel Sharp, in 1751, wrote of a penile clamp that he invented. It says, for use, it must be covered with velvet. It must be accommodated to the size of the penis and taken off whenever the patient finds an inclination to pass water. The instrument is exceedingly useful because it, is, it always answers the purpose and seldom galls the part after a few days of wearing. I tried to look for a diagram of this. There was actually a textbook that I found in full online and had plates in it showing various instruments, but I could not find the plate in question, so I could not find an image of it where I would have shared it in the show notes. Dickinson, in 1762, wrote of counter-irritation with vitriol, which is um, basically acid. The idea was to raise a blister on the sacral area, and somehow raising a blister on the sacrum was supposed to create an effect where bedwetting would cease. And I'm not sure how the rationale behind this works 100%, but it irritates the nerves on the sacrum, and this somehow relieves the nerves of the bladder. The Victorian era introduced all kinds of treatments, taking iron, arsenic, or alkalizing agents orally. Circumcision was supposed to cure bedwetting for reasons that don't seem very clear. Uh, putting silver nitrate into the bladder neck. The silver nitrate uh, was a cauterizing agent. Uh, cold baths, warm baths, brisk towelings, open air exercises, 
whole dashes to the perineum. Nerve tonics, injections of ergot into the ischiorectal fossa, and suppositories of sheep fat and strychnine were all things that were introduced during the Victorian era. Ergot is a fungal extract, incidentally. Victorians also tried sealing off the urethra with colloidian, inflating rubber bags in the vagina to pinch the urethra shut, flogging with stinging nettles, and various ties and trusses of the penis to tie the penis shut. Uh, in that case, in at least two cases, the penis was cut away by damaging from ties of that nature. At one point, one doctor suggested that bedwetting was a disease of nervous children and recommended that children be kept home from school for afternoon naps. Parents were thought to contribute to the problem, and in response to one anxious mother, the physician told the mother that she ought to commit suicide, and there was nothing that he could do for the child unless the cause was removed. In 1878, Rudock suggested cauterizing the urinary meatus, which is the opening of the urethra, with silver nitrate, so as to render it more tender to the passage of urine for both boys and girls. I'm assuming rendering it more tender to the passage of urine is a way to wake you up when you urinate. Henry Thompson cauterized the prostatic part of the urethra with silver nitrate after passing the catheter into the bladder. He suggested doing this every few days for two to four minutes. I don't understand the rationale for doing this. There wasn't any explanation in particular in the references that I read. Jacoby, who was another doctor, described Thompson's method said that the installation of a few drops of cocaine into the urethra should render anesthesia superfluous. But then he went on to mention a case of one child who required anesthesia uh, over a dozen times for this purpose. So apparently his explanation of not needing anesthesia was not accurate. The Victorians did, however, come up with some of the more conventional modern strategies as well, like limiting fluids before bed, setting alarms, and they came up with a concept for the wedding alarm, although their execution was pretty poor. The first wedding alarm was basically just a method to electrocute the child when they wet the bed. Uh, the first alarm was described by Nye in 1881, his description is as follows. Attach one pole of an electric battery to a moist sponge fastened between the shoulders of the patient and the other to a dry sponge placed over the urinary meatus. The sound of the battery will soon lull the patient to sleep. While the sponge is dry, no electricity passes through the body of the patient and his slumber is not disturbed. The moment the sponge is moistened by urination, it becomes a conductor of electricity. The circuit is completed through the body of the patient and he is aroused and caught in the very act. Repetition like this, a repetition of a like experience for a sufficient number of times, I am inclined to think, ought to cure the patient. You can definitely tell there was no medical ethics boards at the time, no institutional research boards to oversee researcher projects. Jacoby, 
1891, followed up on this study to at least give the advice that applying the negative pull of the battery to the interior of the urethra was bad, as urethritis was sure to follow. So at least they were advising not to put the electric probe directly into the urethra. The first proper bedwetting alarms were developed in 1938. The bell and pad system, as they're known, where the pad goes on the bed and contains electrodes, wetness completes the circuit, and it rings a bell. The first wearable aneurysis alarm was released in 1979. The second half of the 20th century started to see some other scientific innovations that represented real progress. There was a pituitarian snuff made from dried porcine or bovine posterior pituitary gland, which is the portion of the brain where antidiuretic hormone is produced. It was discovered to be effective for treatment of aneurysis. Now, the interesting thing about this is we're actually bridging the gap at this point between things that we were seeing in the ancient world and things that we're going to be seeing in modern medicine. We're actually looking at grinding up an animal part, and in this case, snorting it. This is an effective treatment at this point. We also soon see two drugs approved by the FDA for the treatment of enuresis. The first one approved for enuresis is uh, imipramine, or amipramine, depending how you feel like pronouncing it. It's approved for the treatment of enuresis in 1973. It's a tricyclic antidepressant. It was actually first approved by the FDA in 1959, but it's an antidepressant, so that's what it was originally approved for. Uh, the secondary approval for treatment of aneurysis didn't come for a number of years. It has many side effects, uh, which is why it's no longer generally considered a first-line antidepressant. It's not described as an antidepressant until other things have failed. It's considered a second-line antidepressant. It's used for treatment-resistant depression or sometimes for treatment-resistant bipolar disorder. Um, but it's still out there. It is used for bedwetting, though, because some of the side effects that they discovered that it does have are that it alters sleep patterns, making sleep lighter sometimes causing insomnia in worst cases, which obviously is not helpful, but making sleep lighter is helpful if you have very deep sleep patterns and it's causing bedwetting. And it also has mild anticholinergic effects, which reduces bladder contractility. Those two side effects in combination are very helpful if you happen to uh, be a bedwetter. So, it happened to be that they noticed that people who were bedwetters started taking this medication and their bedwetting stopped and they began to research it and eventually they got approval for its use specifically for that purpose. The other drug approved by the FDA for use in aneurysis is desmopressin acetate. Desmopressin I did a piece on in episode 2 at 1124, 
fact, I spent about eight minutes talking about it, introducing it, describing how it works, and then going on a bit of a diatribe about the dangers of it. It can cause hyponatremia, headaches, seizures, and has been blamed for at least two deaths. So it does have some dangers, but it is useful for use in against bedwetting because what it does do is it's synthetic vasopressin, which is antidiuretic hormone. It causes you to secrete less water through your kidneys and it has a very short half-life so you can take it in the evening it works for a few hours overnight and then wears off in the morning it was originally released as a nasal spray so you would spray it into your nose and absorb it through the lining of your nasal cavity so it worked in a very similar way to that pituitary snuff that was also containing uh, antidiuretic hormone which was absorbed the same way. So we were seeing with that, the animal product made from a ground animal part that contained antidiuretic hormone. And here we're having a synthetic hormone that is synthetic antidiuretic hormone. You're spraying into your nostril and absorbing the same way. So this is a controlled dose, a little bit more accurate in the amount that you're getting and you can control exactly how much is going into your body a little bit better than you can with snuff where you're taking you know a pinch or a certain amount you're trying to get exactly what you need out of a container but it's not as it's not as accurate as getting you know one spray out of a nasal spray bottle desmopressin was then released in other forms they have sublingual melts where they're like little wafers that you put under your tongue and they melt. And then they also released it as tablets so that you can just take it as a pill. A third drug that's sometimes used for bedwetting is oxybutynin. It's not technically approved for bedwetting specifically, but it is of course approved for incontinence. So using it for bedwetting is technically off label, but it's used in general for bladder instability so if you have an overactive bladder and you prescribed it for that it can help reduce bladder spasms which can reduce bedwetting if that's what's causing it so there are times when it's prescribed for that reason and if that's the suspected cause of the bedwetting then that can be helpful as well alarms are considered the best modern method to achieve long-term results. They can be combined with overlearning or dry bed training. Overlearning is where once you start to achieve dry nights, you begin to deliberately drink extra water before bed so that your body will have to learn to wake up when your bladder is full. So you're giving yourself a challenge and it gives you time to learn not only to sleep through the night without wetting the bed, but to learn to actually wake up when your bladder is full with the use of the alarm to help learn that. Dry bed training has to do with encouragement to strip the bed when it gets wet, encouragement 
to visualize staying dry overnight and a number of other things. Encouragement to tell people that you're trying to stay dry. Uh, encouragement to... Um, there's a, a number of things. It's really meant for children and it's considered to be somewhat punitive actually in its nature so it's not recommended by most scientific papers it also does not seem to add anything to studies when they look at the effects of an alarm plus dry bed training the results don't get better so even though you'll see it recommended sometimes as something that you can try it doesn't actually show up as a significant improvement or if there's an improvement the improvement will be very very weak so it's not recommended by most doctors it's not recommended by um, most papers in their conclusions even if it showed a very weak uh, statistical significance the biggest problem with alarms is that they have a very high discontinuation rate it's difficult to maintain them for the period of time long enough to get results from them. They typically take three to four months or longer. Some studies run them all the way out to six months before they see complete results. In the meantime, you have to be okay with the idea that this alarm is going to wake up everybody in the house and announce that you've wet the bed. Even in cases where there are parents who are responsible for waking up a child when they don't wake up to the alarm themselves, and you have a child who is not necessarily going to be the one making the judgment call on whether or not to continue, the, the discontinuation rate can be between 30% and 60%. So it's very difficult for people to maintain the use of an alarm over a long enough period to get results. If you do maintain the alarm for a long enough period to get results, the success rate can be as high as 75%. That said, there is a relapse rate as well. So even if you are successful, the relapse rate, depending on the study that I looked at, is between 13% and 30%. So you may be successful in attaining dry nights, and what that means depends on the study. So some, some studies it meant being completely dry, some it meant having an improvement. Most of them it was a period of 14 consecutive nights dry was considered a success. So 14 conse consecutive nights, and that was considered a, su a successful trial. And if they went back to having at least one wet night in a month, that was considered a relapse. So 13 to 30% of patients, patients who had a success then relapsed and had to repeat the alarm to try and succeed again. And successes on a second trial were lower than success rate on the primary trial. So... It's a long time to use the alarm. Dropout rate is relatively high. Success rate is okay, but there's still the relapse rate to have to contend with. 
So it's a difficult thing to contend with to get the results that you want to from the alarm. A step above the use of alarms are what are called bedwetting treatment centers. There are two bedwetting treatment centers that I know of. One of them was called Pacific International Limited. They have closed up shop. They've been out of business for about 10 years. They were the primary bedwetting treatment center in the U.S. for like 62 years. Uh, they had a very long run. These companies are generally based around the use of alarms with reporting back to a counselor that they provide. So it's something that you could potentially do at home. They'll claim that they have a bigger program, that they're going to provide you with personalized service, that your counselor is going to give you information directly to you that will customize the program to you, tailor the program, and give you feedback. But at least in the case of Pacific International, if you can find the reviews, they're getting more difficult to find because they've been out of business for a while. Basically, all people were doing was filling in progress report cards, sending them into the company, and then they would get another book of progress report cards when they were running out. There's supposed to be a money-back guarantee, but it seemed to be basically impossible to claim. Programs cost thousands of dollars. People were using the alarm, sending the reports in, following the instructions, and if they were successful, that was great. If they were unsuccessful, they could never get their money back because the company would just claim that they had failed to send in reports on a timely manner and thus defaulted on their contract or would claim that uh, they had not disclosed something in their initial interview or would make some other claim that they had failed to complete the program because the time limit hadn't run up. You had to do it for a certain number of years to technically have completed the program. So people would drop out effectively. They would say, this isn't working for me. They'd want their money back. They would be told that you have to complete the entire program before you can be declared to be unsuccessful. So it was effectively a big scam. And then when the company closed, they just stopped sending people their progress report books, stopped answering the phones, nobody could get a hold of them, and they just kind of disappeared off the face of the earth. The other company, the one that's still in business, is the Enuresis Treatment Center, which I believe is in Farmington Hills, Michigan. They have a program that is very, very secretive. What I was able to find out was that their program costs about $2,800 and that they make participants sign a confidentiality agreement. They claim that they tailor their program, again, that they tailor their program to individuals and that they won't let you talk about what your individualized program was to anybody outside the program. So you can't find out what they're doing. What I could find out was that from the one person who was able to or was willing to 
write-up review that talked a little bit about what had happened was that their program did involve an alarm, which is unsurprising. And that beyond that, they wouldn't explain any more of what their personalized program entailed. I also read that some people had tried to get their insurance to cover the fee, but that the claims were so vague and that the company wouldn't disclose what they were actually doing so that nobody who tried to get their insurance to cover it was able to get their insurance to agree because it was very nebulous what was actually going on. Personally, I have a sort of dim view of these treatment centers. It seems to me that anything that you can get from them you can probably do yourself with an alarm and a little bit of research online. Of course, we have one more option in the modern world, and that's just to live with it, to make your peace with it, and just move on with your life. We're the best option right now of any time in history in terms of med pads, disposable products, or cloth products in terms of management. It doesn't have to be uh, sort of the sort of sentence that it used to be in the old days. I've seen old ads from the Sears catalog for you know, very bulky cloth diapers. And we have much more streamlined cloth options now. We have much better disposable products now than we've ever had before. We have better bed pads, better washing machines. Everything that we have right now is better than anything we've had at any other point in history. And it'll probably only continue to get better. So at this point, you have options that we've never had before. It's just food for thought. I hope this has been an educational episode. That's all I've got for you tonight. This has been Adult Enuretic. If you want to get in contact with me, you can navigate to the subreddit and look me up on the moderator tab. You can email me at adultenuretic at gmail.com or you can go to speakpipe slash adultbedwetting and leave a message. Hope you have a good night and a dry morning.